You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. We turn your Bible to John 16. We're going to be completing John 16 today, starting in verse 25. Thank you. Adam and our college choir for leading us this morning. I rem- when I was an intern, uh, the college had their weekly choir, and it was the place to be. When you would come in and, and hear them singing, and it, it was like flashback 20 years ago. So it's been a real delight uh, to see that this morning. Baptized two people, praise God for that. Uh, baptism reflects that the Lord sits enthroned and he is control of all things as evidenced by the salvation of sinners. That's one of the greatest miracles uh, that, that, you, that the world has ever seen, is the salvation of, a miracle, uh, of, of sinners who are in natural rebellion to God. And so let's thank the Lord as we go into our time of preaching. Father, we thank you for being a saving God. Thank you that we can sing hallelujah. There is salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, the living God, our Savior, prophet, priest, and king. And Lord, as we complete this time in John 16 today, we pray that we could behold him uh, anew. And we pray that your spirit would glorify the Son. We thank you for uh, all that has transpired already today. The songs, scripture reading, and prayer and baptism. And we pray now that you would speak to us um, in the word of God, by the spirit of God. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we know that we celebrated on Tuesday the 506th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. And we spoke a great deal last week about how Martin Luther really began that Reformation by the nailing of the uh, theses on the wall of the Wittenberg uh, Castle Door Church, and, and it, it set off a chain of events that would lead to the Protestant Reformation. Last Sunday night, I also spoke to the fact that much of what he did to fight this war was through his pen. Uh, he wrote many important works. Ironically, perhaps his most famous work did not come through his pen but it came through the pens of his, his students who were quoting him. Um, and it was collected together in what is known today as the table talk. There's 6,596 entries of the table talk. And essentially, the, uh, his students are hearing him give these anecdotes and, and funny stories, and, and then they would pen them. They would, they would write them down. For posterity. You see, in the 16th century, professors of, of seminaries, um, they, they had different responsibilities than many uh, professors today. And, and one of the things that Luther would do, uh, it, he and his wife, Katie, they would bring in students to live with them in, in what was a place known as the Black Cloister. Uh, he lived there from 1525 to, to 1536, or 1546, where he died there. But uh, and he would bring in up to a, a dozen students at a time 
uh, to live uh, with them. And, and every night they would, they would sit at their table and, and, and he, would, he would just talk and he would give them wisdom. Some of the things were not necessarily, um, they were edgy. Let's just say that. Uh, he, he could be edgy. And he would give them uh, nuggets of wisdom and, and just anecdotes and funny stories, some of them even irreverent. And then they would move from the table and then they would walk out into the garden and he would just continue to teach and, and to pontificate. And, and these students through the years began to collect all of these, these anecdotes and statements and quotes. And then you have the, the, the table talk. And so we have that today. And it's remarkable uh, piece of literature. So let me just give you one example of the table talk, one of those anecdotes. Uh, one of his students came to Luther and said, someone has asked me, is it okay to baptize in warm water? And here's Luther's response. Tell the blockhead that water, warm or cold, is water. That was just one anecdote in, in table talk. Well, when we come to John 13 to 16, and we're completing that today, uh, it could be said, we could, we could aptly say, this is Jesus' table talk to his disciples. It began at a table as he is observing the last Passover meal that he would transform into the first Lord's Supper in the upper room. And then after chapter 14, they left the table like Luther would leave the table and take them into the garden. And it appears that Jesus walks through uh, this this orchard or, or something, a vineyard or something of that nature as he begins to speak of the true vine from heaven. But we come to the conclusion today of what we could say is Jesus's table talk. Now, one difference between Luther's table talk and Jesus, Luther would often be irreverent or say things just for wit or humor. Jesus is speaking of things here of ultimate life and death. He is giving his disciples words of ultimacy that must be preserved through their pen and by the Spirit. And we come to the end today of that table talk. And this end uh, of this section is so important because it's kind of a summary of all that he has said since they were first in the upper room. And so these last truths that we see here uh, before he's arrested. Now, in between his arrest and these words, he will pray. We will see this in John 17, a remarkable prayer. But these are his final words to his disciples. And what we see, first of all, is he gives his disciples a new understanding of God as their father. And it will come through his overcoming victory, all right? It will come through his overcoming victory. He's going to overcome sin and death. And through that victory, he's going to give his disciples a new understanding of God as their father. Look with me in verse 25. I have said these things to you. What things? Everything he has said, starting in chapter 13, this is the conclusion, right, of his table talk. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about 
the Father. So all through Jesus' ministry, he had used figures of speech. In fact, that very term is found all the way back in chapter 6 when he is referring to the fact that he is the shepherd uh, and they are his sheep and he warns them of the wolves. And in chapter 10, verse 6, it says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand. But throughout the gospel of John, we've seen these figures of speech. In John chapter 2, he said, you tear down this temple and I will raise it up on the third day. John chapter 3, he speaks about the need of the new birth. You must be born again in order to enter, indeed, to see the kingdom of God. He speaks about the bread of life in John chapter 6, the living water in chapter 7, the light of the world in chapter 8. He speaks about chapter 9, chapter 10, that being the door and the, and the shepherd of the sheep. And then last time, we, we saw him using the language of a woman who is in labor pain, but who bears, who gives birth to a child. And that labor pain is part of the joy of, of, of that child. He has spoken in figures of speech. And so why does he use figures of speech up till now? Well, it's due to their incapacity to understand. Notice back in chapter 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It would require his cross. It would require his resurrection. And the resurrection would become the lens by which we interpret all the scripture. It would require the Holy Spirit for them to understand the significance of all that he has said. And then, once they have the Spirit, once Jesus has been raised, these figures of speech would take on a whole new depth of meaning for the disciples. Of course, we recognize this was fulfilled. And you can see the fulfillment in just the distinction between the Gospels and the Epistles. And so in the Gospels, you see Jesus' words through the pens of the Gospel writers. And in the Gospels, you see this, this promise of a kingdom, and, and you see the king of the kingdom, and you see why this king must be crucified and raised from the grave. But then it ends. It ends there with the resurrection and the, and the Great Commission. But then you get to the, to the epistles, and you see the apostles or the disciples and apostles who were expounding on the implications of the kingdom. Now, one is not more inspired than the other, but, but it's progressive revelation. And so what you have in the gospels, so to speak, is kind of like a seed, the seed of the gospel. And then in the epistles, you see the fully developed plant. Well, notice we in verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name. What day? It's the day when he is raised and they are given the Holy Spirit. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. And so it appears that during the three years that the disciples were with Jesus, rather than going primarily to God, they would go to Jesus, and then Jesus would go on behalf of them to God. But in that day, all that is going to change. I want you to notice, he says, you will ask 
Now, who will ask? Only those who sense their need. Do you know, only those who recognize their complete dependency pray. Generally, most people, even, even atheists, will pray in a world of emergency, of hurt. But those who commune with God on a daily basis live daily in the recognition that they are completely dependent on the manna of God, on the grace of God. That word ask is found five times in these verses. The fact that we have to ask reminds us that we are creatures and he is God and he is the fount of all supply. But notice we will ask in Jesus' name. The only way we can approach a holy God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that phrase in Jesus' name is found three times. Verse 23, verse 24, and verse 27. To pray in Jesus' name is not a, just a, a check we can sign, a blank check that we can write. It's not a name it, claim it promise. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray on the basis of the merit of Jesus, okay? Motivated by the mission of Jesus. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. You're coming to the Father through Jesus on Jesus' terms. You have the same agenda as Jesus, okay? So it's based on his merit. You only come through his blood. And it's based on the fact that you're on the same page with regard to his mission. And so a good way to start is to think about what we know is the Lord's Prayer. I mean, think about that. Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer and so when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Well, I'm coming in Jesus' name and I'm praying that God's name would receive the glory it deserves. And that becomes the heartbeat of my life. That becomes my consuming desire. And if it's not there, you pray, Father, hallowed be your name in my life. My, my affections for you, my zeal for you is too puny. Hallowed be your name in my life. Hallowed be your name in my spouse's life, in my children's life, in my family's life. Hallowed be your name in my church. Hallowed be your name in our community. Hallowed be your name to the ends of the earth. Lord, I am not as zealous for the nations as I should be. Hallowed be your name. It's a good way to start. And then the second part of that prayer, your kingdom come. What are you praying there? That the gospel would have great success. Maybe you have lost loved ones and lost friends, friend, lost neighbors. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come at Lakeview. Your kingdom come in this community. And then the next part of that phrase, give us this day our daily bread. You're praying for God's provision. Yes, physical provision. It's good to pray for physical provision because you're praying, Lord, you are the fount, the source of all supply. It glorifies God to pray that. But you're also praying for spiritual provision. Bread often represents the metaphor of the, of the second person of the Trinity. So give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know what that is? That's daily confession, daily repentance, daily forgiveness, daily rest restoration of community and communion. 
And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is to protect us spiritually. Protect us spiritually, Lord. Protect us from falling into temptation. Protect your pastors and leaders from falling into temptation. And all of that comes in Jesus' name. That is through the merits, the righteousness of Christ which covers us, the blood of Christ which cleanses us. And through Jesus, in Jesus, we have access, get this, to the Father. The Father. Now, to understand how remarkable this language would have been to the disciples, you need to understand this. Old Testament believers did not call him Father. They understood him as Father in the sense of creating all things and the institution, the creation of Israel. But they didn't just come to him as Father. It required the coming of the Son of God to understand that the first person of the Trinity is God the Father. Now, the God of the Old Testament is not different than the God of the New Testament. They're the same God, but there is a progression in revelation, okay? Like blowing air into a balloon, a balloon, and now we're seeing it begin to take shape. But now that we have seen and beheld the Son, we can know we have a heavenly Father. Now, there were suggestions of that in the Old Testament. For instance, in Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. But that's a simile. That's a simile. It required the coming of the Son to understand the fatherhood of God. So by the time you get to the, the Sermon on the Mount, 13 times we read about the Father in Jesus' first sermon in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, 13 times. More than the entire Old Testament, okay? And so here, right before he's arrested, right before he prays, his last words to the disciples, he's emphasizing the fatherhood of God. You think that's important to us? He's emphasizing adopting grace because our natural condition is to be orphans and to think like orphans. And he is reminding us, you're no longer an orphan if you come to this God in my name and through my merits. In fact, his stress on Knowing God as Father is seen immediately after he's raised from the grave. Here's what he says to the women there. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Okay? And, and so what we see here, is that we now, through the Son, have access to the Father. There's this moving anecdote that, by all accounts, I think it's a true story of a, of a Union soldier who had this great need. I don't know what the need was, but the, he had this terrible need. And he decided to go straight to the top. And so he goes to Washington, D.C. to see President Lincoln. 
And, and when he gets there, uh, they tell him, you can't see the president. We're in the middle of a war. Uh, he's quite busy, if you, do, if you haven't noticed. And, and so he sat in the hall, and he was weeping. And before long, this little boy walks down the hall, and he sees the soldier. And he says, are you okay? And the soldier said, no, I need to see the president. And the little boy then grabbed the soldier's hand and began to lead him past security and past all the secretaries. And he walked into the, the Oval Office and Lincoln was there with his head down. And Lincoln looked up and said, son, can I help you? And here's what the guy said. This soldier needs to speak with you, daddy. When we come to the father, it's because we are being led by the hand. We're coming through the merits of the son of God. Indeed, we're coming because he ever lives to make intercession for us. Correct? He ever lives. There was a great divine who said, if we could just hear Jesus praying for us in the next room, we would not fear a million enemies. And he's closer than the next room. He is praying for his people. And through his intercession, we have access to the Father. But here, he is clarifying it's not that the son has to twist the father's arm in order for the father to be gracious. In fact, the entire work of the son for us rests on the loving care, the prior love, if you will, of the father. Indeed, look with me in verse 27. For the father himself loves you. He loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, this does not mean the Father loved us because we loved Jesus first. That is not what he's saying here. In fact, the same writer, John, writes in 1 John, this is love. Not that you love God, but he loved you and gave his son as a propitiation for your sins. In fact, he goes on and says, and we love God because he first loved us. So that's not what he's saying, that God the Father was reactive to us. What he is saying, we can be assured of God's love for us through the love that we have for him we can experience his love for us through our love and our faith in him through Jesus Christ. The father does not need to be persuaded to be gracious. After all, it was the love of the father who sent the son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him would not perish and have eternal life. Of course, that's the love that leads us to repentance. Now, if you think you deserve that love, it's not going to lead you to repentance. It's going to lead you to, to self-righteousness. But if you recognize, I don't deserve that love. 
I am a moral basket case. I am a sinner. I don't deserve his love. I deserve his judgment. But once you understand you don't deserve it, but you desperately need it, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, when you read that God loves you, it transforms your heart. It changes you from the inside out. Ray Steadman, who was Chuck Swindoll's mentor, I think his predecessor at church in Palo Alto, he told a story of an elderly man in his church who told him of the day, this was late 19th century, when Dwight L. Moody came to Cambridge University in England, one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Now, Dwight L. Moody, most of us know that name. We know that he was used mightily of God. Maybe you don't know, but he butchered the king's English. He had terrible grammar. He was not highly educated in that sense. And, and, and so he did not sound educated when he preached. And so there were a group of cage stage students, and every school has them, uh, who came to heckle him. This man, this uneducated man, this hick did not belong at their distinguished university. And so they sat on the front row. And when Moody gets up to preach, the first thing he does is he looks down at those, uh, those young men and he says, young gentlemen, don't ever think God don't love you for he do. And they were so stunned, they forgot to heckle. And he began to preach on the love of God as seen supremely in the all-sufficient, glorious sacrifice of the Son of God. And a couple of those young men were converted, including this old man who would tell Red, Ray Stedman that story. He was one of those young men. That love is what changes us, and it's supremely seen in the cross. It's supremely seen in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, notice with me in verse 28. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Notice this twofold movement, and it's so simple, and yet it is the ground of our salvation from heaven to earth and then back to heaven. He came from heaven to earth, as one song says, to show us the way, right? And then from the earth to the cross, our debts to pay, all right? And then from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. In our response, we, we lift his name on high. That, that's what he's saying here. Coming into the world, we could call the Emmanuel principle. God with us. Our situation is so dark, it's so dire, it's so hopeless, it requires the incarnation of God himself to fix it. This is his salvific humiliation, him coming to earth. He didn't have to come to earth. He came by his own gracious prerogative. And he took on human flesh and he underwent the miseries of this life. He came under the law, 
And then he experienced the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and was buried and remained under the power of death for a time. Why? For us and our salvation. But then he was raised from the grave where he was vindicated. And he leaves the world going to the Father. And that is our salvific exaltation, his salvific exaltation for us. And that exaltation would vindicate his earthly work. And so in coming into the world, God came to humanity. And in going back to the Father, he brings humanity to God. You see? That's what he is saying here in this very important verse. In other words, when he came, he came to conquer sin and death for humanity. And in his going back to the Father, he took that victory to heaven for us so that we can come to the Father in the Son. Indeed, his overcoming victory gives us a new understanding of the fatherhood of God. The last part of this passage, and I will, I will move through this quickly. Uh, the last part of this passage, we see that the disciples will now have not only a new understanding of the Father, but a new experience of peace because of Jesus overcoming victory. Look with me in verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. It almost seems like a mild rebuke to Jesus. They always seem to have a higher view of themselves than they should have. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them. He, he, he was not impressed with their confession there. Uh, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered. Don't be so impressed with yourself. You're going to run when it gets hot. You're going to deny me when it gets hot. Each to his own home and will leave me alone. I'm going to face this alone, but notice, yet I'm not alone. Father, Father is with me. Indeed, this is an important principle for us all. But what it reminds us is that the disciples played no role in our salvation. There is one Messiah. There is only one Messiah. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is our hope. And here's why it's hopeful for us. He persevered in his saving work in communion with the Father. And even when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was still one in purpose and will with the Father in making the ultimate sacrifice for our sins by dying in his human nature, being crushed for us. And because of that persevering obedience to the Father unto death, we have hope. It's not based on your present day faithfulness. If he base it on your present day faithfulness, you're going to be up and down like a roller coaster. It is based on the persevering faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't give you a ticket to live the way you want. When you understand that, it transforms your wants. 
That's what he's telling them here. And, and here, he gives us an important truth as we come to the final verse of his table talk. In light of what he just said, you're, you're going you're gonna to forsake me. You're going to scatter, just like we do often. How many times do you have an opportunity to be bold for Christ and you shrink from it? That's a form of what, the Jesus, uh, what Jesus' disciples did. You have an opportunity to share the gospel, but you're afraid if that person is going to have a, a negative impression towards you. And so you scatter. But praise God, your salvation is not grounded by your present faithfulness. It's based on the fact that Jesus endured to the end unto death, just knowing that the Father was with him. And then he closes here this table talk with three promises. One, we don't want to hear. Two, we do want to hear. Notice me in verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation in the world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So let's look at the negative first. He says, you are going to have tribulation. You can't avoid it. Weeks ago, I gave you reasons from John Newton why we have tribulation. That's a, a sermon we looked from John 14. Well, he gives us another one here based on the, even the word tribulation. That word tribulation derives from a Latin word uh, for the threshing tool that divides the wheat and the tares. One of the benefits of tribulation is that it, it reveals what you really believe. Okay? And many of you have been through much suffering, and we see your steadfastness to Christ in the midst of that suffering. It has revealed what you truly believe. It also reveals those who had a, a faux kind of faith, a, a kind of imitation faith, a counterfeit faith. And so in this world, you will have tribulation. This world is the place of testing. You can't avoid it. Even if you shrink from sharing the gospel with someone so, you, so that you can avoid tribulation, you're not going to avoid it. So just be bold. But then he promises the second thing, peace. He says, in me, you may have peace. Why in Christ? Well, we've already seen that it's my joy, he says. It's my love and it's my peace. Jesus is the sphere of peace. He, he, he is where peace is found. The only place where peace is found, okay? Uh, many people look for it in their ball team succeeding. Many people look for it in a liquor bottle. Many people see those two things one and the same, as I learned last night at a football game. There is no peace outside of Christ because he is the sphere of peace. And he has come to win peace for us because we Lack peace because we're alienated from God. And so he, what does he do? He overcomes the alienation. And the cause of that alienation fundamentally is God's wrath on our sin and our rebellion to this God. And so he takes the wrath for our rebellion. And for those who trust in Jesus, peace is restored with the Father. And that peace is not dependent on any circumstances. It's not depending on anything except you need to be united to Christ. And then he says, 
You will have peace and you will have victory. Take heart, I have overcome the world. He has overcome the world. Uh, that's such an important statement because that verb, overcome, and English doesn't have this, but it's in the perfect tense. You know what that means? That means something that's happened in the past and has permanent, ongoing effects. Jesus is forever the overcomer. Jesus conquers, and he now becomes the sphere of victory. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. And that's why John will say later in 1 John 5, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. Same verb. Why? Because we've been united to the one who's overcome the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Our faith unites us to Christ. And remember this as we close. Jesus is saying all of this in the shadow of the cross. The most heinous thing in the history of the world is about to happen. The, the worst thing in the history of the world is about to happen. The only good man in history is about to be crucified on a cross. And he is saying, as if it's already happened, I have overcome the world. But before he is arrested, they're going to hear him pray. And 19 times in this prayer, we're going to see over the next weeks, he speaks about the world. How is he going to overcome the world? First, through intercessory prayer. Okay, that's how we overcome as well as believers. But second, it will take his cross and his resurrection. And through that resurrection, through his ascension to the Father, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. These are his words to the disciples who are about to have a very difficult rest of their life because they are going to be identified with Jesus. They're going to be beaten and bruised, and many of them will be martyred. And yet, they will remember all the while in his table talk, I am more than a conqueror because Jesus has overcome the world. As Adam and the musicians come forward, this is primarily a word to believers, okay? In this world, we have tribulation, and, and we lose our bearings in tribulation, don't we? It's like being in an airplane in the clouds, and you hit uh, turbul turbulence, and you just, you lose your, well, I lose my mind, okay? And, and that happens when we go through this. And we need to be reminded by faith that no matter what I'm facing right now, I am in Christ and he has overcome for me. Be encouraged by that. Let that truth restore your faith and hope and love in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also recognize some of you have never trusted in Jesus. You've never bowed the knee. You can only come to the Father in Jesus' name. But he gives you that opportunity this morning. If you will come to him in repentance and faith. Won't you come to Christ this morning as we stand? And Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.